Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Tea Time. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. The Four Tudor Queens Three, Elizabeth I. The Tudor era is all about the women. Once you get past Henry VIII and his six wives, three successive queens got a chance to warm the throne of England. But being a queen in a man's world wasn't easy. Unfortunately, these reigning women were pitched against each other in deadly struggles for power. In these four episodes, we'll look at the lives of the four queens of Tudor Britain, Jane Grey, Mary I, Elizabeth I, and Mary Queen of Scots, and examine their brief, bloody, brilliant, and bumbling reigns. In the last two episodes, we met Jane Grey and Mary I, cousins who fought each other over the crown and the soul of the nation. Jane lost the throne and her head after only nine days in power. Then Bloody Mary forced her people to convert back to Catholicism and burned those who refused. Today we'll meet Elizabeth I, her brilliant younger sister, who managed to survive her bloody reign. She ruled over a golden age and is considered one of Britain's greatest monarchs. And so, without further ado... Elizabeth I Elizabeth I of England, daughter of Henry VIII, was never expected to be queen. But after her brother and sister died, she became one of England's greatest rulers. She swore off men and was a brilliant leader who proved that a woman could do the job just as well as a man. Elizabeth was born on September 7, 1533, at Greenwich Palace. Her father had moved heaven and earth for her to be born. He was desperate for a legitimate son to secure the Tudor dynasty, and when his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, entered menopause having only given him one living child, a daughter Mary, he spent seven years brawling with her and the Pope in an effort to secure an annulment and take a new wife. In the end, he split England from the Catholic Church and made himself the head of the new Protestant Church of England in order to marry his new paramour, Anne Boleyn. Nine months after Henry and Anne wed, she gave birth. But both parents were deeply disappointed when the child they had done so much to secure turned out to be a girl. The royal couple took the birth in stride and carried on with the planned feasts and jousts to celebrate the birth. 
S's were added to the word prince in the official birth announcements, which had already been written. As was customary for royal children at the time, Elizabeth was set up in her own household and raised away from her parents. But her mother Anne loved her dearly and visited her often. Unfortunately, Anne's relationship with her sovereign husband began to sour. Anne suffered a miscarriage and Henry turned his attention to other ladies. Anne's enemies at court poisoned the king against his wife and she was arrested and charged with adultery. When Elizabeth was just two and a half years old, her mother was beheaded in the Tower of London. Eleven days later, her father married the next lady in line, Jane Seymour. Jane finally gave Henry his heart's desire, a legitimate male heir. Jane then died of childbed fever. Elizabeth was declared illegitimate and deprived of her place in the succession. Elizabeth was raised in her brother's household and along with him. When the princess was four, Cat Ashley was appointed as her governess, and the women remained close friends from then on. Elizabeth was exceedingly intelligent and diligent in her studies. Cat taught her French, Flemish, Italian, and Spanish. Other talented tutors were appointed to educate her, and she impressed them all with her brilliant mind. From the age of 12, she was able to translate the works of Greek and Roman philosophers into various languages, and she continued to perform these mental gymnastics for fun and relaxation for the rest of her life. Elizabeth's father, King Henry VIII, had gone on to marry three more times. His sixth wife, Catherine Parr, also possessed an impressive intellect and was the first English queen to write and publish a book. She impressed the young princess with the power a woman could wield. Catherine encouraged the ailing king to reconcile with his two daughters, Mary and Elizabeth. Henry was impressed with his second daughter's intelligence and precociousness, and she reveled in his renewed praise and attention. When King Henry died in 1547, and Elizabeth's younger brother Edward became King of England at the age of nine, the 14-year-old Elizabeth went to live with Catherine Parr. Catherine soon remarried to Thomas Seymour, who also happened to be King Edward's maternal uncle. Thomas was nearing 40 and had charm and sex appeal to spare. Catherine was desperately in love with him and was blind to the inappropriate behavior he displayed towards young Elizabeth. He frequently entered her bedroom in his nightgown, tickled her, and slapped her on the bottom. At first, Catherine joined in, laughing it off as playful games. She once even held Elizabeth while Thomas cut her gown to shreds with a sword. But when Catherine caught Thomas and Elizabeth in an embrace, she realized things had gone too far. Rather than protecting her stepdaughter from her husband, she sent Elizabeth away. Within a few months, Catherine died of childbed fever, and Thomas renewed his pursuit of the princess, this time with the intention of marrying her. He had also been scheming to take the position of regent from his brother, Edward Seymour, and even attempted to abduct young King Edward, killing one of his dogs in the scheme. Thomas was arrested and Elizabeth interrogated as to her involvement in the plot, but she was found innocent. Thomas, on the other hand, was beheaded. Historians believe that this childhood abuse may have turned Elizabeth off of marriage as an adult, though the fact that her father had her mother beheaded might have also contributed. Elizabeth was raised in the new Protestant faith her father had established. 
This would have made her mother, a devoted Protestant reformer, very happy. Her younger brother, King Edward, was a fervent Protestant, while their older sister Mary was a zealous Catholic. Before his death, Henry VIII passed a Succession to the Crown Act, which put his son Edward first in line to the throne, followed by his two daughters in order of age, Mary first, then Elizabeth, though he never imagined that the two daughters would be needed. But when King Edward's ill health caught up with him, and it was clear that he would not live past the age of 15, he and his advisors began to fear for the future of crown and country. It was clear that if Mary became queen, she would turn the nation back to Catholicism and oust all of the Protestant courtiers. They had no legal grounds to skip Mary in favor of Elizabeth, as both had been deemed illegitimate. So they threw out the Succession Act and instead made Edward's cousin, Lady Jane Grey, the heir. When Edward died in 1553, most likely of tuberculosis, Jane was declared queen by the Privy Council. But the scheme to swap out Jane for Mary was doomed from the start. Mary was popular with the people and they felt they'd been duped. Mary easily raised an army and marched to London with Elizabeth by her side, ending Jane's reign after only nine days. Mary, now queen, recognized that Jane had been a political pawn and did not wish to execute her cousin. But when a rebellion in Jane's favor frightened Mary's betrothed from coming to England, Mary signed the death warrant and the 16-year-old, nine days queen, lost her head. Mary had fought her whole life for her position after her mother, Catherine of Aragon, had been cast out as queen. When she came to the throne at 37, she made quick work of undoing her father and brother's efforts to convert the nation to Protestantism. But she turned her initial support against her when she decided to marry a foreign prince, her cousin Philip, heir to the throne of Spain. Elizabeth knew she was in a dangerous position. As the Protestant heir to the throne, she was an obvious rallying point for anyone who wanted to rebel against Queen Mary. Elizabeth tried to display solidarity and Catholic conversion to her sister, though she made excuses and faked illnesses to get out of attending Mass, infuriating Mary. A year into Mary's reign, Elizabeth received a letter from Thomas Wyatt, who informed her that he was raising an army in rebellion against the Queen. Elizabeth wisely did not reply in writing, but told the messenger, rather ambiguously, that she would do whatever God called her to do. Wyatt's rebellion was quickly suppressed by Mary's army, and Princess Elizabeth was brought to court and interrogated about her involvement. She vehemently protested her innocence, but was imprisoned in the Tower of London while she awaited her sister's decision. The 18-year-old was terrified that she might meet the same end on the scaffold as her mother had. Some of Mary's counselors advised her that she would never be safe while her sister lived. Others argued that there was no evidence against Elizabeth and that she should be spared. After two months, Mary released Elizabeth from the tower, but had her placed under house arrest. All along the carriage ride to her new prison, crowds cheered in Elizabeth's support, though she likely wished they would have let her keep a lower profile. She was held prisoner in the gatehouse of Woodstock Manor for a year. The building was dilapidated, drafty, and dirty, and she feared as much of dying from illness as from her sister's displeasure. When Mary entered the final stages of her first pregnancy, she called her sister to court to witness the birth. 
Mary was confident that her Catholic child would push her sister back in the line of succession and secure her own reign. But as the 10th and 11th months ticked by with no signs of labor, the queen's swollen belly began to recede. She probably suffered a combination of a tumor and a psychosomatic episode. Following the humiliation of her false pregnancy, most believed that the now middle-aged Mary would never bear a child. Her husband Philip abandoned her and returned to the continent. Elizabeth's succession seemed all but inevitable, and Mary was heartbroken. In fury and desperation, the queen accelerated her plans to rid England of Protestants. She became known as Bloody Mary by burning some 280 martyrs at the stake. She soon fell gravely ill, and Philip, who had now ascended to the Spanish throne as King Philip II, sent an ambassador to Elizabeth to negotiate a new marriage with her. Elizabeth was living in improved conditions at Hatfield House and was making plans for her own government and a return to peace and religious tolerance. She put Philip's ambassadors off, making no promises. Nearing her end, Mary had no choice but to declare Elizabeth her successor. She died on November 17, 1558, at the age of 42, most likely of uterine cancer. When messengers rode to inform Elizabeth, they found her walking in the park beneath an ancient oak. As they bowed before their new queen, the 25-year-old proclaimed, This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. A train of a thousand lords and ladies soon assembled to accompany the new sovereign on her journey to London, and crowds cheered her all along her triumphant ride. On January 15, 1559, the date chosen by her astrologer, Elizabeth was crowned Queen of England and Ireland in Westminster Abbey. At the beginning of her reign, Elizabeth set out to heal the rift between Protestants and Catholics that had been torn open by her father and siblings. She passed laws which made Protestantism the official religion of the country, but made punishment for nonconformity light. She required all the bishops to swear loyalty to her as the head of the church, and all but one of Mary's Catholic appointees refused. But rather than execute them as her sister would have done, she simply replaced them with her own supporters, depriving Catholicism of the publicity of martyrs. She also resisted more radical Puritan Protestants and struck down the heresy laws that Queen Mary had used to persecute so many. When appointing counselors and members of her household, Elizabeth made her choices based on merit over religion. Most of her advisors were Protestant, but a few wise and loyal Catholics remained. Her most important advisor, who would be by her side for the next 40 years, was William Cecil. Elizabeth had inherited an ailing England, bankrupt, militarily weak, and surrounded by enemies, particularly the mighty Catholic powers of France and Spain. The most expedient way to bolster the nation was with a marriage alliance, and many suitors were eager for her hand. Her widowed brother-in-law, King Philip of Spain, King Charles IX of France, who was only 16, Archduke Charles of Austria, and the sole Protestant on the list, Eric XIV of Sweden. But matrimony had major drawbacks. If Elizabeth married as her sister had, she might very well be handing over her power to her husband, and choosing the wrong foreign spouse could outrage her people and turn them against her. 
Finally, she addressed Parliament on the issue, and in an impassioned speech, she declared that she was married to England and that she intended to remain a virgin to her dying day. But Elizabeth may not have been as chaste as she professed to be. Her master of horse and personal bodyguard was a dashing and swarthy courtier by the name of Robert Dudley. Elizabeth and Dudley had been acquainted since childhood. They bonded while they were both being held under threat of death in the Tower of London years earlier. Dudley's father was one of the men who had schemed to put Lady Jane Grey on the throne, and following her downfall, he was beheaded and his family imprisoned. Now Queen Elizabeth kept Dudley close, and rumors of an affair between them sparked scandal. But Dudley was already married. His wife Amy lived away from court and was reported to be gravely ill. It was whispered that Dudley was waiting for her to die so that he could marry the Queen. And die she did, not from illness, but from a fall down the stairs. The suspicious nature of her death led many to suspect that Dudley had orchestrated her murder. Though the inquest ruled that Amy's death had been accidental, Elizabeth had no choice but to banish her favorite from court. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history? If so, Join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Three years into her reign, Elizabeth contracted smallpox and fell into a coma. The nation dreaded that the queen would die without an heir and England would fall into anarchy. She recovered but was left with pock marks on her once flawless fair complexion. To preserve her beauty, she took to wearing fine white makeup called Venetian ceruse, which contained lead, a toxic element that slowly poisoned her for the rest of her life. This near miss brought back the pressure on the queen to marry and bear children. But Elizabeth had another idea. Her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, had recently returned home after the death of her first husband, King Francis II of France. Elizabeth proposed a husband for Mary, her old favorite, Robert Dudley, and suggested that their children could be heirs to both kingdoms. But Mary resented being offered the English Queen's cast-offs and refused to entertain the idea. Instead, she fell for and married the dashingly handsome Henry Darnley, who turned out to be a foolish, arrogant, and violent man. 
In a jealous rage, he murdered Mary's secretary in front of her while Mary was pregnant. Another Scottish lord, James Bothwell, orchestrated Darnley's death by blowing up his bedroom. Mary was then abducted by and forced to marry Bothwell, and everyone suspected that she'd been involved in her previous husband's murder. The Scots rose up against their queen and forced her to abdicate in favor of her one-year-old son, James, whom she never saw again. She fled to England in the hopes of finding sanctuary, but was instead arrested and imprisoned. Love and lust had been Mary's downfall, and now Elizabeth's resistance to both seemed a very wise decision indeed. For years, Mary continued to be a figurehead for Catholic resistance in England. Rebels rose up in the north and attempted to free Mary and place her on the throne, but Elizabeth's army defeated them and hundreds of rebels were hanged for treason. The Pope declared that any Catholic who killed the English Queen would be innocent of sin and would secure a place in heaven. Several assassination attempts on Elizabeth's life were foiled by her secret service. Across the Channel in France, thousands of Protestants were murdered by their Catholic neighbors during what became known as St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. France fell into religious civil war. Tensions between English Protestants and Catholics were once again at a boiling point. And one particular Catholic and ex-suitor would come back to haunt Elizabeth. King Philip II's Spanish Empire controlled large portions of Europe, including the Netherlands, which happened to be England's biggest trade partner. The people of the Netherlands decided they'd had enough of living under the brutality of Spanish rule, and rebellion broke out. Their leader, Prince William of Orange, asked Elizabeth for support. She couldn't be seen to openly promote an uprising against a monarch, but she secretly sent money to bolster the campaign. She also considered backing someone who might be able to ride in and take over the Netherlands for her. Francois, Duke of Anjou, was the youngest son of Catherine de Medici and brother of King Henri III of France. He was 24 to Elizabeth's 46, but he began to send her very steamy letters with the undercurrent of arranging a mutually advantageous marriage. The Queen was on the rebound as her old standby, Robert Dudley, had given up hope on her and had gotten married in secret and without her blessing. When Elizabeth learned of the betrayal, she flew into a rage and banished Dudley's new wife from court. Anjou arrived in England to continue his seduction, and he and Elizabeth hit it off immediately. She was smitten with a charming young man she called the Frog. She tentatively considered marriage and was optimistic for a happy union and even children. But public opinion was against the foreign match, and a xenophobic pamphlet was circulated condemning the foreign prince. Elizabeth was infuriated and ordered that the pamphlet's writer have his hand cut off. But she knew that she couldn't go against the people's wishes, so with a heavy heart, she turned Anjou down. She did lend him financial support in his attempt to take over the Netherlands, but he bungled the operation, returned to France in disgrace, and died of malaria at the age of 29. Elizabeth supported another clandestine attack on the Spanish. She backed privateer Francis Drake, who besieged richly laden Spanish ships on the high seas and stole their cargo. 
he returned to England with the equivalent of a year's parliamentary revenue in gold and silver and was knighted by the queen on the deck of his ship. Elizabeth had always resisted war. Unlike the medieval kings who came before her, she recognized that the cost of combat on her treasury and on the very people was not worth the personal glory it would buy her. And as a woman, she was unable to march into battle and therefore had to rely on men who might not carry out her orders. But Prince William of Orange, Elizabeth's last Protestant ally against King Philip, was killed by a Catholic assassin, and Elizabeth had no choice but to send English troops, commanded by Robert Dudley, to the continent. The Queen's old favorite proved to be a poor choice for General. The English and Dutch were defeated, and now only the Channel stood between England and the might of the Spanish army. Meanwhile, yet another Catholic plot to assassinate Elizabeth was foiled, and this time it was discovered that Mary Queen of Scots, now imprisoned for 18 years, was directly involved. As long as Mary lived, she would be a threat to Elizabeth, but the English Queen had a horror of killing her cousin and a fellow monarch. She vacillated for days, citing death warrants, then canceling them. Finally, her ministers went ahead with the execution order, and Mary, the former Queen of Scots, was beheaded while wearing a crimson gown the color of Catholic martyrs. Mary's execution was just the excuse Philip of Spain needed to send his powerful armada to attack England. Philip thought it would be a simple campaign, sail up the Thames to London, remove the heretical queen, and claim England for his own. And while his navy was twice the size of Elizabeth's, his ships were large and bulky, built for long trade journeys to the Americas rather than tight battles. Elizabeth's fleet was faster and more maneuverable. She gave a stirring speech to her troops, proclaiming that, though I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, I have the heart and stomach of a king, and urging them on to victory. Rather than face the massive armada head-on, Sir Francis Drake, now Vice Admiral, turned the battle to his advantage by assaulting the Spanish in small dogfights and with fire ships, loaded with fuel and pitch, set alight and adrift among the Spanish vessels. In panic, the armada scattered and many fled. In a final battle, the English cannons won out and the Spanish armada turned and ran. Many of the remaining Spanish ships were wrecked in bad weather as they tried to find their way home. The defeat of the Armada was Elizabeth's finest hour. Any doubts about her ability to lead the nation as well as a man were forgotten, and she was acclaimed as nothing short of a goddess. With peace and stability secure, Elizabeth's reign became a golden era for England. Trade flourished, particularly wool, the nation's largest export, and her people grew wealthier than ever before. Art and literature blossomed. William Shakespeare wrote such timeless plays as Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, and Macbeth. Elizabeth sponsored Walter Raleigh's establishment of an English colony in North America, which he named Virginia in his queen's honor. Raleigh introduced the North American crop of tobacco to the English court, and pipe smoking became all the rage, though he likely didn't introduce the potato as he has long been credited with. The queen dressed fabulously as befitted her glory and near-mythical status. 
Now in her late 50s, the white lead makeup she'd been wearing since her bout with smallpox at 29 had done serious damage to her skin, which caused her to pile on even more of the acrid concoction. It had also caused the loss of most of her hair. And a lifetime of rich, sugary foods had made her teeth turn black and fall out. As a distraction from her visage, she relied even more on elaborate gowns, massive collars, and ornately decorated red wigs. The young social climbers at court flattered and flirted with the aging sovereign all the more to gain her favor. But her lifelong friend and the closest thing she ever had to a husband, Robert Dudley, died at 56. Elizabeth was distraught and locked herself in her room for several days. Her most trusted advisor, William Cecil, who had been by her side since her ascension, also fell ill, and Elizabeth herself nursed him and fed him with a spoon. But he died as well, and Elizabeth felt increasingly abandoned and alone in her court of young upstarts. She liked continuity and replaced her two lost advisors with their sons, but they were no substitutions for their fathers. Dudley's stepson, Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, was hungry for military glory, and Spain was once again preparing for a fight. Essex led a decisive, preemptive strike, destroying much of the invasion force that was waiting in the Spanish port city of Cadiz. He returned to England in glory, and his popularity began to eclipse that of the Queen's. He threw his weight around at court, and when Elizabeth denied his request to fund a further assault on the Spanish, he tried to muster public support against the Queen's wishes. Elizabeth and her hot-headed lieutenant argued, and the Queen boxed his ears. He responded by half-drawing his sword on her, an act of treason punishable by death. Realizing his grave error, Essex fled to his country estate in the hopes that the Queen's temper would cool. Meanwhile in Ireland, rebels supported by Spain rose up against English rule and Elizabeth faced the worst military defeat of her reign. She sent Essex to put down the rebellion and regain her favor, but he defied her orders and delayed his attack. His incompetence infuriated the queen and she wrote him asking what was going on. He abandoned the army, sailed back to England and burst in on Elizabeth in her bedchamber to plead his case but she was not impressed. Essex was interrogated and placed under house arrest. Incensed at his disgrace, he hatched a rebellion plot to remove the queen and become Lord Protector of England. He gathered a private army and marched through the streets of London, calling for the people to rise up against Elizabeth. But few joined his doomed crusade and the Royal Guard easily defeated the rebels. Essex was tried and beheaded. Meanwhile, William Cecil's son, Robert, was secretly writing to King James VI, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, offering his support in making James Elizabeth's heir and the next King of England. The Virgin Queen had never named a successor, though James, her closest male relative and a Protestant, was the obvious candidate. Elizabeth was now 69 and her health was in decline. She was suffering from ulcers in her throat, fever, years of lead poisoning from her makeup, and possibly cancer. For two weeks, she sat on a cushion on the floor, and though her counselors begged her, she refused to eat or go to bed. Finally, she asked her attendants to help her up, 
but she then remained standing with her finger in her mouth and her eyes fixed to the ground for a further 15 hours. At last, she allowed her ladies to help her into bed, where she fell into a deep sleep and never woke up. Courtiers rushed north to inform King James VI of Scotland that he was now King James I of England as well, and the island of Britain was finally united under one ruler. Elizabeth's 45-year reign took England from an island on the outskirts to a major European power. She facilitated a golden age of peace and prosperity for her people and is thus justly remembered as one of the greatest rulers in England's history. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll be putting out new episodes each Tuesday, revisiting and revamping my most popular YouTube videos. Thank you for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.